a lot of people, myself included, will have gone perhaps most of their life or their whole life until this very moment listening to this podcast thinking about f- the idea of free will as something humans have always thought about even if we don't have free will even if you're some kind of uh, scientific materialist determinist you you'd still maybe think at least like people have always had the illusion of free will right but no seemingly not in your book you you talk about a bunch of texts, which are clearly not the whole picture, but are very important testimony to us from late antiquity, wherein something approximating what we mean by free will in modern English is sort of being thrashed out and is sort of emerging. It's clearly emerging out of, very much out of um, Christianity, very much out of this encounter with classical thought and ideas of, you know, really trying to put the truths of the new faith onto a, a footing that Greco-Roman intellectuals can kind of get with. And you talk about the Syriac Book of the Laws of the Countries, which is a very, very interesting text, which we might want to talk about, and also Clement and Origen, two of our fav- favorite Platonizing Christian thinkers in this context. So I wonder if maybe we could talk about this. These are, I would say, snapshots rather than a full movie, of the development of something like an idea of free will, right? We don't get the full movie because we don't have the the full range of evidence, but we do see these this development and we can kind of trace it. I think you do a convincing job of tracing it across these texts. Well, th- thanks for your kind words. I think you're right, you know, as with as with a lot of things in, in the ancient world. Of the, I'm right about a lot of we, things. We don't, yes. we don't, no. <laughs> you, you, no, no, uh, you, you're right about many things. And and this is this is one of these cases where we don't have the whole movie available to us, as you say, but but we have some snapshots, and this this gives us a sense of what was going on, and this seems to be the case with the development of free will. So even arguably until Epictetus in the second century CE, you do not have the notion in Greek philosophy of a faculty of decision making. Of like a, a, a part of you uh, to which praise or blame can be accorded because that is the part from which your actions come. That's where decisions are made. Rather, you have descriptions of responsibility with respect to inclination, with respect to restriction. Um, uh, we, we talked earlier about this phrase, what is up to us, to efhemin. Now, this often is articulated in terms of simply what is physically possible for you to do and what are you restricted from doing. This isn't about choosing right. one of two possibilities, much less opposite possibilities. It's simply what, what are you physically capable of doing yeah. you can't fly. and what are you compelled to do. You yeah, might you decide fly. to fly, but you still can't do it. So that's You it. might decide to fly, but you still can't do it. So it's not up to you whether you fly or not. That's not within your power. And uh, this thinking about responsibility is often phrased in these very physical connotations. And it's only with Epictetus we start to get something like the idea that this inclination is really its own separate place, a faculty in the human being. And then with Alexander of Aphrodisias, an Aristotelian philosopher at the beginning of the third century, the notion that the kind of decision-making that's going on in such a faculty is between multiple is between opposite courses. Right. Do I, you know, with, with the, the angel on one sitting on one shoulder and the and the devil sitting on the other shoulder? Uh, this is what some historians of philosophy call uh, the ability to choose otherwise, to really do something other than you would have done in other circumstances. You don't have to quit smoking. No, you could keep going with it. It's really up to you to do one thing or the other. It's not just a matter of inclination or conditioning or physical possibility. And that's late, you know, from the longer history of Greek philosophy. This is uh, 700 years after the beginning of Greek philosophy that we arrive at this point. And so one thing I look at in the book is where early Christian thinkers fit into this picture, you know, because I just talked about the second and third century CE. Well, this is earliest Christian philosophy. And as it turns out, um, there are a number of really interesting and also quite neglected in scholarly literature from the standpoint of Greek philosophy, passages about human responsibility 
and free will in the early Christian dossier that I wanted to look at. One of these is the Syriac Book of the Laws of the Countries. Um, a second one is Clement of Alexandria's discussion of Basilides, um, the, an early Christian thinker associated with Gnosticism, who was writing in the early second century CE. And then, of course, Origin of Alexandria has a really classic discussion of uh, uh, self-determination, which may be called fairly the first early Christian treatise on free will, writing um, in the first half of the third century CE, uh, Elder Contemporary to Plotinus, right? So I wanted to look at these sources um, because they, they talk a lot about free will and responsibility, but never come up in histories of free will and responsibility from this period. Rather, most historians of philosophy look at vocabulary from Plato and Aristotle, talk about the Stoa a little bit, and then they go to Epictetus, maybe a little bit on the origin, and they, they arrive at uh, Augustine all in the space of two or three pages. So I wanted to see what else is going on with early Christians at this time. And what I found was these three sources, the, the Syriac Book of the Laws of the Countries, Basilides, as reported by Clement of Alexandria, and then, of course, Origin of Alexandria, all describe a faculty of decision-making in the soul prior to the soul's incarnation in the material world. Namely, they seem to be using a similar model to Plato in the Book of Air, right? Yeah. Before the souls, it, it is up to uh, the souls. It is the souls who are responsible before they're incarnated in the body for their choice of what kind of incarnation they take. And for these early Christian sources, I looked at human free will, human responsibility is not just a matter of personal eschatology at the end of our lives at the, or with regards to the final judgment, being judged for what decisions you make, good or bad, are you going to go to heaven or hell? No, it's also a matter of what, how you came into the life that you're in right now. <laughs> right. What kind of decisions did your soul make before it came into the body? In other words, some really important early Christian thinkers, um, especially for the question of, of free will in the second and third century CE, strongly believed that the soul pre-exists the body and it has a capacity for decision-making, which has strong ramifications for how we think about ethics and decision-making in our lives here and now. And so I try to uncover this kind of lost chapter in the history of early Christian development of thinking about free will, where the pre-existence of the soul, something that we normally associate with Plato, is actually very important. I love it as a chapter, but I also think it's worth us concentrating on each of these three sources just for a bit, because they're, they're all different. They're all really different. Yeah, and it's yeah, interesting because, you know, Origen, for example, follows Clement in so many ways. But Clement is attacking Basilides partly because he believes in this pre-existence of souls doctrine. Origen believes in the pre-existence of souls doctrine. Most would agree. There's some, there's some disputing this, but he seemingly really does. So this is a difference between the two great Alexandrian uh, early Christian philosophers. And the Syriac Book of the Laws of the Countries is worth mentioning, if only for the fact that we have not made a point of covering the exceedingly difficult fragmentary evidence for Bardasan of Edessa yet in the podcast. So I wonder if you could very briefly introduce what we know about this thinker, when he lived, where he lived, what was going on with him, and some of his beliefs insofar as we can say anything certain about them. Yeah, Bardaitsan is a tough cookie, uh, no question. <laughs> Bardaitsan was an early Christian philosopher writing in the mid to late second century in what was then considered Syria. And he was based in Edessa, uh, which today is uh, Gaziantep in southeastern Turkey. And Edessa was uh, a center for the spread of early Christianity already in the second century. It remained extremely important as a center for Christianity through the through the medieval period, particularly uh, Aramaic-speaking Christians, the individuals of reading and writing uh, Syriac, or uh, West Christian Aramaic, as it is often called. And Bardaitsan, he became, for various reasons, uh, considered a, a heretic by 
many proto-Orthodox writers. And so we don't have a lot of his writings preserved. The evidence for him is fragmentary and difficult, and it's very uh, hard to see what of this evidence goes back to him, uh, what goes to his followers, and what is simply made up about him, much right. like we have with the Gnostics, except that there's no Nag Hammadi of Bardaitsan, I thought. Yet. But the but the the followers of Bardaitsan kind of remain uh, boogeymen for, for a long time. To the end of the first millennium, they are remarked on as heterodox Christian writers of philosophizing inclination by Syriac Christian authors and, and also by uh, medieval Islamic authors. So they, they stick around and Bradites and I thought remains a, a force to be reckoned with for a, a long time, uh, even following uh, late antiquity and the, the latest, latest reaches of late antiquity. Mm-hmm. Um, what's distinctive about his thought I think there are almost as many Bardaitsans as there are scholars studying him. <laughs> but uh, in, in my estimation, he's drawing a lot from Aristotle and, and the Stoa. And there's a, there's a scholar in Paris, uh, uh, Isabella Yaratz, who is producing a lot of really good analysis of uh, Bardaitsanite evidence um, with respect to how it uh, interacts with Greek philosophy and how it may be located in the world. Greek philosophy, especially focusing on the Stoa. But we also see a lot of Aristotelian language used in some of this evidence, including something called the Book of the Laws of the Countries. This is a dialogue in which uh, Bardaitslan himself features as a teacher with uh, two students. And it's not certain that Bardaitslan himself wrote this dialogue. Um, it's possible that it may come from his school, have been written by his pupils or, or the like, but it, it is, was considered already um, in the fourth century CE uh, by Eusebius of Caesarea to be representative of Bardaison's thought. And so it's fair, even if we don't necessarily say it's by Bardaison, it's fair to say that it's from the Bardaisonite world in yeah. its earliest permutations. And it's called the, the title of the book for the law of the laws of the countries uh, derives from its long closing argument, which deals with uh, uh, customs of foreign nations, because it is, first of all, our earliest surviving Christian treatise on fate. It can be fairly called the, the earliest de facto treatise of Christian philosophy. And second of all, it's one of the most influential and deep discussions of astrological fatalism in late ancient thoughts and especially early Christian thought, um, because it is largely concerned with dealing with the problem of evil uh, as relates to fatalism and determinism. And the notion that uh, the stars determine everything, what is up to us, how do we have any kind of human responsibility given how much power the stars exert on the world. And one of the arguments that's, it it makes many arguments, it's a long book, but the longest argument in the book is a catalog of laws of foreign countries, a kind of ethnography that argues that because people do things so differently in different nations, in different places, even though they have the same birth chart, then it must be that custom plays a role in how how people do things, not just the stars. And customs are, of course, made by humans, and therefore there is something that is up to us. Mm. That's the book of the laws of the countries. One of the things that people seem to agree about Bardaisan is that he's really invested in astral influence. One option available to a Christian, even if you're against astral divination as a practice which might be demonic or it might just be you don't need it because you're a Christian and God is taking care of everything, so why try to see the future? It's impious, whatever your take on divination might be. You might still agree that the stars have some kind of causal effect on events down here on Earth. And seemingly Bardaisan takes that as a given, right? Yeah, yeah. This is definitely one of the reasons for which he was considered unorthodox by later writers, is that he accords some causal efficacy to the stars. Hmm. According to the Bardaitsan, 
Uh, first of all, the soul pre-exists before it enters the body. This is another problem. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and as it enters the body, there are a number of things that um, take place. Uh, one is the kinds of inclinations that the mind of the soul has, helps determine what body it enters. But also the shape of the body is determined in part by the stars, whether uh, you are born blind or lame, for example, to be born with a disability. The stars can have an influence on that, according to Bardaitson. Uh, it's not just chance, and it's not just up to you. The stars do something. And so what this shows us is exactly as you say, that Bardaitson must have been attached to the notion of some causality from the stars, and therefore some validity to the practice of astrology as conducted within certain limits, but that he also wanted to carve out significant room for what is up to us. Yeah. Uh, a kind of faculty of decision-making. I'm reminded of Porphyry to Gaurus, Porphyry's work on embryology, where he talks about the soul, which of course pre-exists the body, entering in the to the body. As it does so, it has to pass through the cosmic region. And as it passes each planetary sphere, it gets some planetary stuff attached to its pneumatic vehicle, its spiritual vehicle, which then affects the kind of embodied human you end up having. We probably don't even have the, that, that level of detail for how Bardaisan saw this, this process going on. But the same general model seems to be present. And it's a quite a widespread model. You see it in some Hermetica as well. You see it probably in Numenius of Apamea. The idea that the descent of the soul into the body, just by virtue of passing through the celestial terrain, is sort of getting energized by all these different celestial powers on its way down, either via a soul vehicle or the soul itself. Most Platonists are going to say the soul can't really be affected by the stars, but its vehicle can, right? Its pneuma can. And that is going to determine the kind of person you're going to is going to come out of the mother at birth. So it's not a question of horoscopes so much. It's a question of the kind of like body and the kind of sort of living animal that gets generated. Yeah. And and so what this what this shows us is that Bardaitson was not weird no in his day for for writing this sort of thing. Mm. This was kind of normal. And it's what's weird is the perspective we have today that has been made by heresiographers, that's been constructed for us, manufactured for us, that's no, no, that is outlier stuff. That is weird, esoteric, uh, forbidden thinking. And I also try to emphasize this with respect to the thought of Basilides and origin on the pre-existence of the soul. For both Basilides and origin, the fact that the soul was making decisions before it descended into bodies, it's really key for explaining how decisions are made by human beings in general and why we see things as they are down here. Uh, for, for Basilides, it explains why some people who seem to be good are suffering. They must have made a mistake or committed a sin in a previous life, and we are all prone to sin, writes Basilides. And for origin, uh, this explains, as it does for Plato, why particular souls wind up in the bodies that they do. These taken together with the, the, the widespread Platonist evidence that talks about souls as pre-existing bodies and as being active in making decisions before they enter bodies, we then see that the descriptions of souls as being made with a body, along with, with the body, at the, the moment of the the body's inception, and that the decisions that come from that soul only are, are incumbent on what happens in this present worldly life, and for which we will reap our rewards or our punishments and at the end of our lives or at the final judgment. That kind of scenario, which is very familiar for those of us who grew up and went to church and or Sunday school, or, or read about the Bible in yeah. the 20th and 21st century. This perspective, you have it in some early Christian sources from the 2nd and 3rd centuries. Sure, you have it in Irenaeus. You have it in Justin, especially uh, Theophilus and, and Tatian. 
But these are short discussions. It's yeah. a couple of sentences. A paragraph at most, you have these long descriptions of the importance of the decision-making of the soul prior to incarnation in the Book of the Laws of the Countries and Basilides, according to Clement, and in origin. But the Sunday school model yeah. that we know from St. Augustine and Proto-Orthodox thinkers in second and third century text, it's like a couple of sentences. Mm. It's so short. I could not have written a whole chapter on those discussions. That's really interesting. But the, the fact it, that those discussions are there. So is, but is but as you saw, I wrote a long chapter on these other discussions on the preexistence of the soul. You can do that. There's yeah. enough there. Yeah. But like the proto-Orthodox stuff that's familiar, you can write like a little section at the end. That's why I did it the way that I did. The evidence mm-hmm. forced me to do that. From that evidence, and, and also from the sort of worldview we know if, if we've been reading a lot of Greek philosophy, especially Platonism, the idea that God would create souls ad hoc for bodies is just a kind of a weird one in the Greco-Roman mm. milieu, especially a, a Platonist milieu. And these guys, Bardesan, certainly Clement and Origen, are deeply infused with Plato. They're, they're, Plato is their main way of doing hermeneutics of Christi- Christian and Jewish scriptures via a Platonic lens, you know? So that makes sense, but... If I look at someone like Tatian, who's like, yeah, God just makes a soul and a body at the same time, and boom, it's it, that must have been very odd for people reading it at the time. Oh, it was it was bizarre. Yeah, um, I reckon that one that will have been one of the things that uh, maybe someone like Justin, who who thinks that, underplays it on purpose because he's trying to convince the non Christians to come to Christianity, and maybe he doesn't really want to big up this argument yeah. about god just making souls ad hoc because educated greco-romans would have gone what yeah, you think it, just, it doesn't what? work like that and so, so he, is, he's he's kind of puts it in but doesn't really get too into it because he's hoping they'll just become christian and, and we can work out the details later or something like that maybe and i think i think justin he's not thinking a lot about embryology but you start to get these funkier ideas in the third century the author the refutatio knows a lot of them and for uh Tatian, you know, this, the soul just appears with the body. I mean, that's, it's like, huh, you know, but my, my point is that these models where the soul pre-exists the body, even though that looks funky to us from the standpoint of thinking about early Christians thinking about free will, these were major protracted discussions by major thinkers who had a lot of influence for centuries uh, Basilides, uh, mm. Bardaitson, and Origen. I mean, these are three big shots. Yeah. We have more evidence about their unorthodox views than we do for the proto-orthodox views of the period. And that, to me, is significant. It's, it's interesting to me that Clement goes against Basilides, which he does all the time, on specifically that. Because as you say in your book... This, the evidence from Clement seems, we wish we had more Basilides, right? But the evidence from Clement seems to make Basilides out as the, the writer of the oldest known remarks on providence and personal accountability made by a Christian philosopher. So Basilides, ahead of his time in so many ways, right? Um, like Philo, he's one of these outliers that you just can't quite account for in intellectual history because he seems to be writing kind of third, fourth century stuff in the first century, early second century. This is another way in which Basility seems to have been ahead of the curve in a big way. Totally. He, he I mean, it, it's Leighton who, who identified Basilides as the first Christian philosopher on record, mm. as far as we can tell. Writing during the reign of Hadrian, at that point, you can barely distinguish Christians from Jews if you, at all. Um, so this is, this is as early as somebody philosophizing uh, and claiming... Uh, belief in, in Christ is around. It's amazing. Now, let's talk about origin for a minute because your reading of the On First Principles, Periarchon, Book 3, the Periautexiusiu, the uh, On Free Will, which is preserved for us uh, in the, the sort of baudlerized Latin translation of Rufinus, but also in what's called the Philokalia, which is a kind of excerpt of Origen's Greek works made by some later Eastern Christians who who wanted to preserve Origen's uh, great thought for Christianity. 
So we have a, a good textual attestation for this um, work on free will. Extensive quotes in the original Greek as well as the, the Latin, which is n never quite as satisfactory. What is Origen's take on free will and what makes it such a significant kind of move in the history of ideas? Well, one, one big thing is that with Origen, we do get the thinker who, of whom we can say there's a free will here, okay? He talks about that faculty as that part of you that makes decisions and decisions that it makes are not just about your inclination or what you are physically capable of doing, but your ability to choose otherwise, A versus B, and B is the opposite of A. Okay, and then he describes this faculty with the metaphor of freedom, um, something you don't see in earlier uh, uh, Greek philosophical descriptions of decision making is the notion that uh, decision making is free, that you have to be free to make a decision. The word freedom, eleutria, is uh, a word that usually has political connotations right. in classical and Hellenistic Greek. But with origin, eleutria is, has, has the notion of personal freedom with regards to our decision making. So we've kind of arrived yeah. with him, right? So that's one thing that's really key. Um, another thing is that origin is kind of a compatibilist, okay? So you have a faculty of decision-making, which we can fairly call a free will. It is a, a self-determinating, something that is self-determined, and it is free. And nonetheless, uh, God was, was there for it. He was, he was certainly involved, and he set things up in such a way so that you would encounter just the right tests just the right situation for your decision making origin describes both um educational purposes for god arranging things in a certain way as you encounter them and make your decisions when you encounter them as well as uh, uh, juridical purposes he he wants to set things up as a way of giving you uh, consequences or uh, whether punishments or rewards for for past behavior. And the example of Pharaoh is, comes up here. And they have to be but, just, right? Because God, we have it, to produce, preserve God's justness and goodness. This is the real problem. He can't be punishing people randomly. He has to be punishing people exactly as they deserve. Yeah. It's really important for Origen that when, even when it appears that God is punishing somebody uh, in, in a mysterious or questionable way, in the scriptures, particularly in the, the Hebrew Bible or the Septuagint, there's a reason for it. And the example of Pharaoh is, is really great here. He brings up on a number of occasions, but especially in On First Principles, the, the situation in Exodus where Pharaoh's heart is hardened several times by God because God wants to use him to make a point. It's important for the divine plan, for the providential plan, that Pharaoh does what he does to show, so that God can show who he is to the nations mm. and also foreshadow the life and, and teaching of Christ. So there's an educational purpose to it. And yet, Origen insists, Pharaoh was also free to, to make a choice. God hardened his heart because Pharaoh was going to go that way anyways. And God knew this in advance. This is an, an important aspect of Origen's thinking about free will, that there is divine foreknowledge by God of what people will do, but God does not cause the choice. Rather, the choices that we make cause God to know in advance what, what it is that we will do. And uh, this, is, this may be called uh, fa fairly called the foreknowledge by late by latter causes. It is the later cause that causes God to know in advance what Pharaoh is going to do, and therefore God will treat Pharaoh in this way. Mm. Which, yeah. but which, Pharaoh is responsible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In some ways, I find Origen's take on things ridiculously kind of naive, and um, his view of God's plan in history as revealed through Scripture to be sort of almost cartoonishly 
silly. And in other ways, I think, damn, this guy was a heavy thinker. And he's into some crazy, like, outside time and space thinking, putting himself into the shoes of God who sees everything and reminding us of a kind of block universe interpretation of of uh, quantum physics you know like it's all already happened for god but that doesn't mean he's that the individual events happening in that block universe aren't individually caused even though they're being seen holographically by this being that stands outside the order it's really really interesting stuff it's original this argument and yeah. um and it was engaged by boethius in his consolation of philosophy who and he disagrees with it of course he dispatches it by that point, Origen has fallen on hard times, even though he's put his imprint indelibly on even Western Christianity, I think. They still yeah. can't come to terms with him. And pre-existence of souls is one of the, is one of the reasons for that. Because for Bo- Boethius, you need a theodicy, a, a justification of God's ways without pre-existence of souls, right? Right, right. Thank you very much for explaining that. So this is from the the Periarchon, the on first principles of of origin, and again, as as in our discussion of that work in the main podcast, like we're sort of blown away by Origin's originality. He's he's a scriptural exegete who's just pulling the craziest synthesis of philosophy and and religion out of the scriptures he's looking at, and it's just um, he's sort of blowing everyone's minds. Yeah. He's, he's very original. Something that's important to, to stress as well is who, who he's targeting with this argument about the, the importance of the providential nature of descriptions of divine punishment and education, as in the case of Pharaoh. And that's probably Marcion, okay? It's very important for Origen that the way that God is described in Scripture, even when he's punishing or hardening Pharaoh's heart and visiting punishments upon the Egyptians, that this this God is doing it in a just way uh, for, the, for the sake of justice, not because it is an unjust deity. And this is because some of Origen's competitors are individuals uh, devoted to the exegetical strategy of Marcion of Sinope, who argued that the Old Testament was inspired uh, not by the uh, true loving God, the God of love who sent Jesus Christ, but uh, the, the God of uh, punishment, but, but may be called a just God, but really a, a God who is about punishing, about laws and punishing, namely the God of the Hebrew Bible. This, this idea of a bi-theism where the God of love rectifies the order set by the God of law and judgment namely the, the God of Israel. Origen is, is arguing very strongly against this kind of perspective. This is also key for Bardaitsan. In the book of the laws of the countries, one of the interlocutors is a representative of Marcion's thought. Hmm. Uh, Marcionite thought was very influential in the Roman East and uh, remained influential in Syriac-speaking Christianity for a long time. And so when Bardaitz, the figure of Bardaitsan is talking about individual free will and responsibility in the book of the laws of the countries. He's not just combating astrology, which is of course huge. He's also combating the notion that there is a second deity uh, for which there are, uh, he's, he's combating a kind of dualism, the notion yeah. that there is a second deity to whom uh, many evils may be accorded. Rather, he wants to give more, or not someone to give a unitary picture of the divine against the Marcionites. So argumentation with Marcionism, this is really important for these early Christian explorations of free will as well. Yeah. Listeners may wish to check out our episodes on Marcion and Basilides, where we didn't really get into the question of free will, but which introduced these characters insofar as we can introduce them at this late date. Um, it seems like the Marcionite scriptural exegesis is just so much more... If you're, if you're trying to deal with this very unwieldy group of texts known as the Bible nowadays, that solves a lot of problems just by saying, we're dealing with two different gods here. You don't have to explain why the God of the omnipresent, perfectly good, perfectly all-embracing, loving, 
Providence God is the same one who's going around smiting people and sending she-bears to eat uh, little kids who made fun of one of his prophets and all that kind of stuff, which people like Origen take almost the... um, they grab the bull by the horns and say, these are stumbling blocks that were put there on purpose for us to do the exegetical work to make sense of it all. It's all That's one right. God. That's right. And we have to get into it, which is, I get the the approach that ended up winning, but it's not intuitive a priori when approaching these texts. No, no, it's not. It's not at all. Dylan, we've started with pronoia. We've moved through all manner of different dualist approaches to the problem of freedom. And we've finished with what we can maybe say is the birth of free will in the Western tradition with origin of Alexandria. So thank you for that guided tour. Obviously you had no choice in the matter. You had to do it because you did it. Therefore it must've been faded. That's right. Nevertheless, I think you can be compatibilist and feel good about this uh, interview. And I wonder if I could ask you one or two kind of like irresponsible speculative questions going over this whole terrain that interests me. The astral stuff really interests me. Now we know that, with Plato, we start to see the star, like in, in the Greek tradition, in the sort of Mediterranean traditional religions generally, the sun and the moon have always been gods, goddess sort of figures. But you don't really get star gods until Plato, it seems to me, in Greek world. You have star gods in the, the Mesopotamian world from way back. So the stars are gods. They're actually, in, in Plato's Timaeus, they're responsible for the fine-tuning of the cosmos and fate. And you also have astrology, from the Hellenistic period onward, with its own theories about gods, stars as significant causal and or semiotic forces of uh, what's going to happen. But it seems like fate, it, if, if we take fate in a, in a modern intuitive sense of the word, it's going to mean something like that which is destined to happen. But from a lot of the sources you're talking about, it seems to me that fate is something more like the law of physics of a geocentric cosmos if you're underneath the moon. That's like what fate is. It's like physics, right? How do you think fate and and the stars like come to be bonded so much? Like if we look at Zeno of Kitium, the founder of Stoicism, at, in our surviving evidence, he doesn't talk about the stars much at all. But by the time we get to Posidonius, there's a lot of evidence for like really strong astro- like ideas, like the mechanism of fate is the stars, right? In the sort of late Republican period he's writing, late Roman Republican period, first century. So... It seems like many thinkers, and it maybe even philosophic stroke scientific thought in general, was turning toward the actual observed heavens as a mechanism for fate. What is going on there? Irresponsible question, but I just want no, like no. to see. No, I, th- I, th- I think it's a totally on. responsible question. I think it's a great question. I think it's a great question. My first inclination would be that the movement of the stars is not just observable, but it's consistent. And you know, something you read over and over again in astrological writing from antiquity is that it's the movement, the eternal movement of the stars um, may be considered a fact because you can observe it. You can see it. Ptolemy says that nobody is capable of living long enough to see the entire celestial sphere make a complete rotation. You know, the human, human lifespan can't do that. Several human lifespans couldn't do that, you know, but, but you can see enough in your human life so that you can tell that there is a regular movement and this is going to repeat and repeat and repeat, which is a uh, part of why the, the ancients considered the world to be eternal. Mm. It's, this is going to keep going round and round and round. When Plato talks about fate as the physical laws governing the universe, one of those laws is the regular movements in nature that are observable and so to me it's only natural that among these regular movements the stars would emerge as particularly important but already in plato the stars play a really special and uh, integral role in human life right um souls are made of star of star stuff yeah well and the stars are made of soul Um, stuff in the timaeus yeah, oh, you could put it the other way around, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Like the stars are made of soul stuff. Each human being has a star. Um, and the stars are related to human bodies. Moreover, the planets moving among the stars, these are, these are gods. And part of the purpose of 
gods uh, is to is to run things and have some control over human affairs. This is why it's only half wrong to call the Epicureans gods because they say the gods exist, but they have nothing to do with us. Well, what kinds of gods are those? You know, <laughs> so I, I think I think a lot of it is in the Timaeus already, and then going. Going from there, if you if you call fate uh, a law, like in the Phaedrus, it's the, the law of Adrasteia, the way things go, and then you put this together with the notion in Book 10 of Plato's Republic in the myth of Ur, that there's a law according to which the souls in making the decision gets of, of for what decision as to what body they will inhabit, they wind up in a particular body. Put all this together, and I think you have a pretty within within Plato's corpus alone. You have enough dots to be able to connect fate, stars, observable regular motion, and what is happening to us right down here. So, what I wonder—that's kind of been my um, conclusion in looking at this stuff. But what I wonder, first of all, is where Plato's getting this from, or is this indeed mm. his? crazy place where he isn't riffing on anyone else. He just came up with this idea at the conflux of the new movement toward mathematized astronomy going on in Greece at the time, plus his res- the reception of Babylonian astral teaching at the time going on in Greece. And he just decided the stars are God and they're made of souls and we are cycling through them as we reincarnate. Or is he, is it a bricolage as Plato so often is? I wonder if this isn't maybe his his great, like, forget the theory of forms, astral causation and soul lore is the true Platonist uh, legacy and originality for mm. the Western tradition. It's something I wonder about a lot. But then I also wonder about that, if you're trying to draw a lineage of this later than Plato, this, these ideas of astral causation, astral divinities, the stars as uh, agent causes here on Earth, which is which just becomes mainstream scientific view until the early modern period and still is among some people. Is it enough to talk about these platonic sources or do we want to talk about others? Like if we talk about astrology and the the texts that transmit astrology and the kind of worldview that lies behind them, are they riffing on Plato among other things? Or do we want to talk about other streams, other intellectual currents leading toward this synthesis in uh, later cosmology, late antique and and medieval and early modern cosmology, whereby you have a, a geocentric cosmos with star gods circling around, souls moving up and down, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. A lot of good questions there, man. Um, as to where Plato is getting it from, well, first of all, we know Plato is a genius of earth-shattering proportions True. in uh, Peter Adamson's uh, memorable formulation. So... I'm always happy to assign him some some leeway, some some room to just be a creative genius. You know, I, surely he made some of this up. What would be his likely sources for some of these ideas? Maybe Orphic and Pythagorean books. You know, we 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 know that there were Orphic and Pythagorean books around. He talks about them. Yep. And from their titles, it appears that they have to do with the soul and sometimes the stars and how things are put together. Yeah. So that's, I mean, we don't have access to this stuff and that's a, well, that's an irresponsible speculative answer. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's an irresponsible <laughs> but, but it, but, but speculative answer. That's, um, that satisfied many, a, an acute scholar in the past. Um, I think it's uh, Boyancé who, who puts the, the so-called rise of the, uh, the celestial afterlife in Plato and Platonism firmly at the door of Pythagoras, based based mostly just on that one um, Pythagorean tradition, Akuzma, preserved by Iamblichus, where he says something like, uh, the Isles of the Blessed are the sun and the moon, or something like that, right? And so therefore, and, and other lore of that we have, very late lore, but probably preserving earlier lore that may go back to early Pythagoreanism, where they might have had a kind of celestial heavenly afterlife tradition. That's so it's it's irresponsible, maybe based on the evidence, but it's not uh, unheard of or uh, utterly unfounded. It's, it certainly seems no. a possible ingredient anyway. And the so-called um, uh, Orphic lamellae, the, mm. the, these gold 
little talismans discovered at, at graves in Greece with uh, poetry written on them that some scholars would would say belongs in, in some way to the Orphic tradition. These describe a relationship between the postmortem fate of the soul and the stars. Yep. So big time. Um, and these are these are after Plato, but not long afterwards. And yeah. so if you read that stuff into the Orphic dossier, we say that the Orphic dossier is older than than Plato himself, and you could speculatively guess that he could be getting this from Orphic books. Yeah. Possible. I'm riffing off Orphic ideas. I buy yeah. that actually. I buy that. I think that's uh certainly in the in the eschatological myths of the Fido. Um, I think probably the Phaedrus as well. And the myth of Ur for sure. I think the myth of Ur for sure and the Phaedo for sure are riffing on some stuff that is recognizably Orphic stroke Pythagorean. To what mm. to say more than that, I'm not prepared to, you know, but it just there's yeah. there's all these thematic similarities and um even the coy references to Orphics in the Republic that kind of point us in that direction and all the references in the Fido to something I heard from a certain someone who knew about the true earth and this kind of stuff is all pointing toward sources of some kind, right? I think so too. I think so too. So there we go. There's some insights into this kind of astral stuff going on at the background of all these discussions of fate and um, the order of the world and how and our freedom within it. So thank you for those... Uh, irresponsible, but measured and quite informed speculations. Uh, what have we not talked about that we want to talk about, Dylan, before I let you go? We didn't talk about Plotinus. We didn't talk about Plotinus. I'm always <laughs> up for talking about Plotinus. So let's have a look at the great third century let's, let's, Platonist. Let's have a quick go at Plotinus. Let's... Because he has some really interesting stuff to tell us about the will of the one and fate and providence. So this this is a, this is a ball. Plotinus... He does, he does a number of things with providence, and there are really two bodies of evidence in his writings that I wanted to tackle in the book. Um, on the one hand, there's his discussion of uh, the will of the one in Aeneid 6.8, and then on the other hand, there is a treatise that Plotinus wrote on providence uh, that was uh, sundered in two by Porphyry, and as he compiled the Aeneid's and these are uh, treatises, Aeneas uh, uh, 3.2 and 3.3, but it's a, it's a single treatise that Porphyry cut in two. And Plotinus engages um, uh, the earlier Greek philosophical tradition about providence in uh, very original ways uh, in, in, both of these, in both of these settings, but he also does two really different things. And... And that was interesting to me. But I mean, you know a lot about on the will of the one, Earl. I mean, you're you're better you're better situated to, to introduce this treatise than I am. Not at all. Uh, well, one reason I think you, or one reason you might be better situated than I am, is that in the recent new translation of that treatise by Corrigan and the late lamented John Turner for Parmenides Press, they go to Gnosticism all the time in looking at the philosophical debates lying behind the ideas in that text. Yeah, I, okay. I mean, if you, if you want to go straight there, then I'm, I'm, this, this, this I'm happy to talk about. I'm going to go there. So, I did it. Yeah, you did. You did it. You went there. So Plotinus's main question in this treatise is, if the one is transcendent, um, how can it have a, a faculty of willing at all? And he sets up for himself a number of uh, uh, interlocutors, some, um, uh, um, some, some likely real, some, some imagined or perhaps hypothetical. This is a habit of his, yeah. you know, the, this, to set up people to argue with in his head. And one of them offers uh, what he calls the daring opinion that uh, you bet that a truly transcendent being, a God worthy of the name, a first principle of first principles, you bet it ought to have a faculty of willing. If it doesn't have a faculty of willing, then I'm not interested. There, the, a, a transcendent source of all things also needs to have a will, a thrust, an involvement. And 
this is the opinion that Plotinus engages uh, most thoroughly and with the, uh, the most energy in, in this treatise. Because what he wants to show is on the one hand, no, of course, the, the, the one is beyond willing and thinking and any kind of involvement in anything. That's why it is the one, it is transcendent, it is itself, it is unified. Uh, any kind of engagement um, uh, presumes a kind of duality and therefore it can no longer be one, right? But, and but, he then goes completely against that really and argues there is a way in which, of course, we should say that the one has a willing and a kind of caring about everything because it is the one. So on the one hand, Plotinus wants to preserve the transcendence of the one, but it's very important to him to argue that on a certain level, we should speak of the one as being involved in everything for there is a kind of oneness or unity in the world that we encounter and in the intelligible world. And yeah. in that way, it, that it could have only been this way, there's the one willed that. And I should say that that treatise, uh, 6.8, and also 6.7, which comes before it chronologically, Plotinus doesn't talk about the one. He talks about the good almost exclusively. So they're the same principle. Ah, this is important. But I think yeah, this is important that he chooses in this context to describe the one in its role as the good so all that is good in our cosmos and in the noetic world which is the heart of our cosmos is somehow from the good even though the good is transcendent so there's a there is a treatise from Nag Hammadi called the tripartite tractate it is the fifth tractate in Nakamadi Codex I, also known as the Jung Codex, because it rested for a while at the Jung Institute in Zurich. And this treatise is full of Plotinian language. And you could argue that it's with this treatise, actually, that scholarship on Nakamadi and Greek philosophy began. Because already in the early 1960s, the Dutch theologian and Egyptologist Jan Zande, who Jan Zande, who is uh, uh, located in Utrecht, he was uh, uh, reading this treatise, struggling with its very difficult Coptic, and tried to make sense of it in terms of Plotinus's philosophy. And he wrote uh, what is the first book on a Nagamadi text and Greek philosophy, this book on the tripartite tractate and Plotinus. I think it's published in 1962. So among the Plotinian elements of the text are the heavy negative theology with which it begins and its heavy use of the metaphors of a fountain mm. and of a tree with uh, a bearing plants and fruit to describe the creation and production of the intelligible universe through emanation rather than the craftsman's work, the emanative creation of Deus and the, and the flowing forth of everything from the one. Uh, the same metaphors are used in the tripartite tractate and Plotinus. Now, the tripartite tractate is also very big on the will of the first principle, which it calls the one. It calls it the father and the one. That's mm -hmm. the, that's, the, the God and the tripartite tractate. And it may be transcendent, but it has a will. And this will is operative throughout the eminentive scheme as the different layers of the pleroma called a church emanate forth. It is operative when one of the aeons in the pleroma called a logos, a word, chooses to think outside of itself and create something outside of the Pleroma, a kind of version of the fall of Sophia or wisdom. It is operative in the fall of humanity. In other words, the father, the first principle in the tripartite tractate is very transcendent, but it's willing everything. It's very providentially active from the beginning to the end of history. 
And Turner and Corrigan noting this treatise's proximity to the thought of Plotinus and its very heavy emphasis on willing propose that the daring opinion to which Plotinus replies in his treatise on the will of the one is the tripartite tractate. Mm. And if it isn't, it's someone with that kind of approach anyway. Maybe yeah, not. that's right. Even if it's not this particular text, mm. it's something a lot like it, right? Yeah. What else could it be? Yeah. So and so, it, do you think it's safe to say that it's some Abrahamic take on things? Pretty much for sure, because the idea that the first principle in in the third century, in a you know sort of Platonist philosophic school, that the first principle has to will stuff, strikes me as you know like the, that you insist that. A true, any God that's, any first God or first principle that's worthy of its name has to have a will. This strikes me as pretty Abrahamic. It's not a priori obvious from um, even a middle Platonist or a, a late Platonist perspective that, that, that you'd have to attribute will to the, you know, when Plato talks about the, the form of the good in the Republic, he doesn't say, and it wants stuff to happen and, and arranges things for the best. No, it's just, a, it's just something that has effects. It doesn't want to. It just does. Do you know what I mean? Totally. And uh, Corrigan and Turner, to their credit, are responsible when they when they suggest that the tripartite tractate is a good interlocutor for Plotinus's views in this treatise. Um, they also note that any representative of Judaism or Christianity in Plotinus's day could have made the kind of argument to which he replies. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, we know that Plotinus was in dialogue with uh, Gnostic writings, if not um, Gnostic people themselves, although I think that's a reasonable inference to make that he knew Gnostics and were talking to them. Hmm. And moreover, we have some Gnostic texts surviving that use language that sounds a lot like that's from his school and which make exactly the kind of argument to which he responds in Aeneid uh, 6.8. So it stands to reason this is not a bad candidate. I argue in the book that this is not the only place where Plotinus may have engaged the tripartite tractate. Um, in his treatise on Providence, Aeneid's 3.2 and 3.3, Plotinus begins by argue, by stating that he wants to defend the existence of providence from two of its detractors. Just to be clear, he's attacking Epicurean views and Gnostic views, but he's not naming either of these groups, right? Like he never names the Epicureans. He doesn't even... No, he, does, he, has, he doesn't like to name anybody. Yeah, he, he doesn't, but he especially doesn't even deem them worthy of serious kind of like pointing out, really. But he, re but he refers to these ideas and he wants to refute them. First, that there is no providence because the gods aren't involved, or that the maker of the world is evil, that the creator is not providential. And that's got to be the Gnostics. Nobody else represents that view in his day. And he, of course, had already written uh, against the Gnostics. This is a later treatise. And Plotinus then proceeds to describe the, the unfolding of the intelligible world from, from Deuce, right? And he acknowledges that even that, that while the intelligible world is a harmonious one, the present reality that we currently inhabit may not seem to be harmonious. So his question is, how can it be that a, a disharmonious world, a world that seems disharmonious, can have emanated forth from the harmonious heavenly world of the of Nous. And he opposes uh, harmony to disharmony, a good song to a bad song, good to evil, happy plants versus bad plants, things like that. There's a kind of duality that he describes as a, a perceived duality as issuing forth from the process of emanation there. And nonetheless, he claims there is a logos or reason that presides over the organization of these, this emanation 
the emanation of the uh, uh, phenomenal realm. Moreover, he says, even if you were to hypothesize that there is clashing within the world, nonetheless, this logos, this reason, is a general that presides over the disharmony and clashing that we see within the world. In other words, even if there is strife in the present cosmos, and it's not just perceived, but it's real strife, then even that is organized. Now, this scenario is what is described in the tripartite tractate from Nag Hammadi. There, once a logos principle decides to go outside of the pleroma or the fullness, through God's will, yep. I might add, from it issues two kinds of heavenly beings, those of the right and those of the left. And those of the right are just and they are good in a way, although they are not spiritual. And those of the left, they are not just, they're bad. They're associated with matter. They don't even have a, a psuche, much less a pneuma. And they are at battle with one another. And so the reason that the, uh, according to the tripartite tractate, from Nag Hammadi, that our minds and our experiences of the phenomenal realm are so full of strife and conflict is because the two orders from which everything came outside of the fullness are in strife and at conflict with one another. But that doesn't mean that there's strife and conflict within the heavenly world. It's just outside of it. Nonetheless, says the tripartite tractate, there is hope for all of the strife is organized by that logos that word, which has come to put it together so that even the beings on the left, the bad ones, play a certain kind of role as overseers, judges, executioners in the present realm. Origin of Alexandria has a similar argument about demons. Right. Demons may seem nasty, but they're doing God's work in a way. Just mm -hmm. as a city needs a brutal executioners you know, to execute criminals. You got to have one, right? Every town needs a guy with the, the axe at the chopping block. Mm. So the world has to have a demon. And the tripartite tractate makes this argument too. So these two competing orders of strife governed by a logos, this is a hypothetical that Plotinus entertains in his treatise on providence. And it is one that is described explicitly in the tripartite tractate from Nag Hammadi. Mm. So to me, that looks like a second engagement of Plotinus with the tripartite tractate. And what is his solution? What's his solution? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> no, this is interesting. As original as Plotinus is, and, and he is original in so many ways, the treatise on providence is not so original in terms of its answers to the problems of evil and what is up to us. It's standard middle Platonism. He argues that Providence and fate are to be distinguished from one another. Providence is the big plan. Fate are the, God, are the laws that govern everything. He doesn't talk about a law of conditional fate, but that would make sense given what he does have to say. Right. I mean, the, the original noology of Plotinus, his description of the world of noose and emanation, actually does not play a big role in how he talks about providence and fate in this treatise. He gives standard textbook answers interesting. to the Gnostics. Yeah, it is interesting. What is original in this treatise is his description of everything being governed by a logos. And even some serious Plotinus scholars, people like Arthur Hillary Armstrong, have asked if he's dependent on early Christian thinkers or Philo of Alexandria. Yeah. Because he focuses here so much on the figure of logos as describing how the world is organized in the emanative sphere. And that's not something he does a lot elsewhere, but in the treatise on providence, it's very big. Yeah. And maybe you could also explain this with reference to the tripartite tractase where the logos is so important mm. in just this way. One could also, I think with equal plausibility, say he's perhaps taking Stoic arguments because the Stoics are quite sometimes quite good on the cosmos. They just don't believe in the hypercosmos, right? So Plotinus oh, yeah. knows that the Stoics' view of the universe is severely truncated, but they're quite good on the bit that they know about sometimes. 
And what makes the cosmos run providentially? Logos, infused in everything, right? So he could just be taking arguments from well-known Stoic takes on the imminent Logos in the world and riffing on those and using them for his own purposes. Definitely plausible. I mean, where did Philo and early Christians get the Logos from? They got it from the Stoa, right? So why wouldn't Plotinus go there too? Yeah, yeah, I buy it. Or it could be the tripartite tractate. Or a bit of both. A bit of both, maybe. Or a bit of both. Or a bit of both. But it's worth considering. It's worth considering. What strikes me, what really struck me, is is the, the description of a Mogul as a general overseeing two armies fighting one another. This is this is very peculiar. The generalissimo analogy is taken from Aristotle. Right. Okay. But the description of the general as a logos, the only parallel you have for that is the tripartite tractate. That's 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 very that's pretty precise. That's very and interesting indeed. Another another so intriguing parallel between Plotinus and the Gnostics. Another intriguing parallel between Plotinus and the Gnostics. Exactly. Which way does it go? Nobody knows, but they're in it together. They're in it together in this period. That's a good way of putting it. Dylan Burns, you're the man. Thank you so much for talking to us about fixed fate, free will, and foreknowledge absolute. Earl, you're, you're the man. It was a blast. Thanks for the great questions and the great discussion. I, I enjoyed it very much. It's an honor to, to have been on. Stay esoteric. Um, yeah, stay esoteric, man. <laughs>